Hello, all you wonderfully strange and unusual creatures. I'm Corey. And I'm Courtney. And this is Sinister Crimes and Cocktails, a true crime show that digs into the dark depths of sinister minds, their menacing crimes, and mistakes left behind, all while sipping on a sinister cocktail masterminded by Corey for each episode. We want to first start out by saying that our sinister cocktails featured for each episode is just to help us lighten the mood a bit on the dark and horrific crimes we cover. And in no way, shape, or form are we trying to make light of the horrific crimes. Please know our hearts go out to the victims, their families and friends, and law enforcement affected by each of the cases we cover. Okay, Corey, what sinister cocktail have you masterminded for today's episode ending our month of paying it forward? And a great segue into next month's crimes that we will look at. Calling this one a box murder. One and a half ounces of vodka, half an ounce of tropical syrup, and some Prosecco. Combine the first two ingredients into a shaker with some ice and give it a good shake till it's cold. Then top it off with some Prosecco and enjoy. I really like it. It has a very tropical taste to it. It's very good. It's really along the lines of a mimosa. So good. It is. Just a little sweeter. Good job. Thanks, buddy. So all you wonderfully strange and unusual creatures, pour yourself a cocktail and settle in for this sinister true crime. The boy in the box. Believe us, you're gonna need it. Located in Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, at the Ivy Hill Cemetery in Cedarbrook, there is a headstone that reads, America's Unknown Child. The child who lies beneath the headstone is a boy who was found in a cardboard box beaten to death some 65 years ago in 1957. The death of the young boy is one of Philadelphia's most famous unsolved murders, with the case having become known as the boy in the box. For decades, this cold case has baffled Philadelphia police, who over the years have pursued thousands of leads in search of the child's identity and those responsible for his death, but have continually come up empty-handed. Well, that was until 2022. Thanks to genetic genealogy testing and some good old-fashioned detective work, the victim has finally been identified as four-year-old Joseph Augustus Zarelli. Unfortunately, though, investigators have yet to uncover who is responsible for his death. So, who is the sinister mind responsible for the death of Joseph August Sorelli? Oof. Well, we're going to find out that his identity was discovered through genetic genealogy, and we're going to get into that later in our podcast. This is a very cutting-edge new forensic tool that they're using within the law enforcement. Corey loves it. I do. It's amazing. We'll get into that. But it's interesting that this is very much, just off the, the very cusp of it, I very much feel like this is probably... Whoever killed this young boy very much, to me, was a caretaker. Somebody who he was in their custody, control, and care time of his death. So we'll get into it. We'll see. But that's who I think definitely is the person responsible for this murder. I would motherfucking agree with you. On February 23rd, 1957, Frederick Benices, a student at LaSalle College, was walking through the woods that surrounded the Fox Chase neighborhood in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. According to all that's interesting, Frederick had been in the area hoping to catch a glimpse of the girls enrolled at Sister of Good Shepherd, a home for wayward youths, but instead he noticed a cardboard box in the underbrush. Inside the box he saw a small head and had assumed it was a doll of some sort as the dirt road he was on was commonly used by residents in the area as a dumping ground and then gone about his way. After Frederick had heard about a missing girl from New Jersey, a few days later on February 25th, 1957, he returned where he had seen the cardboard box and much to his surprise, discovered a body. As reported by Philadelphia Magazine, Frederick, unnerved by his findings, contacted the local authorities. Now surprisingly, this wasn't the first time the body had been discovered. Two days prior to Frederick first coming across the box, a young man had spotted the body when he was checking on his muskrat traps in this rural area. 
Knowing his muskrat traps were illegal, he decided against telling the police. Doesn't surprise me. (laughs) I was going to say. This doesn't surprise me because you're in the legal act too. You're scared. That doesn't surprise me at all. Really, it doesn't. It happens even today. How many podcasts we've covered where people just put their heads in the sand court? Yep, a lot. Right? Be vigilant. Just say something. It's okay. It's not going to be as bad as you think. No shit. One of the first officers to arrive on the scene was patrolman Elmer Palmer. In addition to a variety of other trash located in the vicinity, Palmer found the JCPenney cardboard box that had once contained a bassinet and unfortunately confirmed it was a body of a young boy found inside. The child had been found nude and wrapped in a brown and green flannel blanket, which had a Native American pattern. No forms of identification were found with or near the body, but a blue corduroy cap, which was the size a child would wear, was found near the box. What interests me about this is he's four years old. We're going to know he's four years old just because we're going to be able to identify him later in the podcast. But I'm just going to tell you right now, he's four years old and he's found in a bassinet box. So that kind of tells me maybe the caretaker had another child, a newer child, a newer baby, which adds a level of stress. Court, we both know me and you, right? We are 100% in this club. We know what it's like to have a four-year-old with a new baby. Fingerprint analysis Bill Kelly was called to the scene to take latent prints from the boy in hope of helping identify him. So this is 1957, right? Latent prints is interesting for me. It kind of struck me when you first said this. I was like, how would they know to call, you know, latent print expert? But also too, as you're going to point out, they're going to be able to use birth certificates to try to identify this boy's identity to see if they can't match it up to him. Yes, ma'am. Officer Palmer told the Philadelphia Inquirer in 2007, It's something you don't forget. This was one that bothered everybody. The medical examiner determined the boy was 3 feet 3 inches tall and weighed 30 pounds. Since he had not lost any of his baby teeth, it was estimated that he was between the ages of 4 and 6. The young boy was described as having blue eyes, fair complected, and medium to light brown hair that had recently been crudely cut as some clippings were still present on his body, leading some to believe that the killer had tried to disguise his identity. Would you agree with that? I don't know necessarily that I believe that they were trying to disguise his body. I can see why people would think that court. You know what I mean? I can see, especially back in those days where you didn't have the knowledge that the public has now. Because they didn't have shows like CSI back then. They didn't have shows like Law and Order. They didn't really understand a lot. So I could see why they would think, oh, they cut their hair to disguise themselves. To me, I look at it more as I think his hair was cut in a haste. I think it was part of the escalation that happened that caused his death. If you want my honest opinion, I think whoever the caretaker was, obviously, was angry. Things escalated. They cut their hair. I can perceive maybe they were washing his hair and maybe he had something in his hair that they couldn't get out. They got mad. They cut it real quick and then it just escalated from there. Something to that extent. I could see that. I more think that this is a case where you already have evidence in there that says he was in a bassinet box, that a bassinet came in. So to me... Whoever his caregiver is, there's a high probability that there was a new child involved in his life, whether it was a sibling or whatever, and that there was a high level of stress in his environment by his caregiver. And to me, I think this is a caregiver who literally was immature about handling what they were dealing with. And this escalated and the punishments escalated and this got out of hand. And that's why this little boy lost his life. And that's going to come from a lot more stuff we introduce here in a minute. But what I'm saying is, is that you have, again, like I said, we already know that his body was found in a box where it was a bassinet. Bassinets are used for new babies. Okay, they're not used for a four-year-old. Right. He's somewhat malnourished, three feet, three feet tall. He's four years old and he's 30 pounds. It's a little underweight for my taste. You know, height is different, but for my taste, 30 pounds as a four year old might be a little bit cautiously underweight. Okay. Especially when they're already born at about, they're between six, seven, eight pound babies being born. So, you know, in a year, you're going to double that weight. 
in two years, you're going to triple that weight. In three years, you're going to quadruple that weight. You know what I mean? So he should be closer to around, you know, 50, 60 pounds by his four years old. No, not that, you don't think that no, high? No, because my youngest is seven and he's not even 60 pounds, Corey. Well, how much is he? He's 45. 45 pounds. Okay. But he's also a smaller statue. He he's also in the 35 percentile. Yeah, he's more, he's, he's, he's a lot. But how about your middle child? Uh, well, no, oh, okay. And how about out. your daughter? Yeah, okay. Okay. It's different, yeah. right? And, and, and each child, don't get me wrong. Don't come after me. Each kid's going to be different. Lord knows I know. But for my two children, I know for a fact, by the time they were four years old, they were already around between 50, 60 pounds, three feet, three inches tall. They were a little bit taller than that. But my kids are in the upper percentile too, because me and my husband are big people. So my kids are bigger. You know what I mean? But I would say usually the, the average that I found is they're usually between 50 and 60 pounds and a little bit taller. You know, my little one, I was like, well, I don't, well, but he eats all the time, but he's so there, little. But there is a lot of factors that go into that, right? And I'm not saying that Quartz malnourishing her youngest. No, me, I'm she not. Is not <laughs> he eats all the time and he's very active. He is a fun little guy. But for this factor, I'm just saying that he was a little bit under where he should have been at this age. I can see that. And we're going to get into how malnourished yes. he was and what his body looked like and that yes. kind of stuff. We're going to get into that. So for me, I feel like this child was more of an afterthought with their caregiver. And then you add a stress of maybe a new baby in there because of the box in which he was found in, which is a bassinet. You Now you're adding that into the factor. And maybe this child is not the most well-behaved <laughs> kiddo, right? Four years old, four-year-old little boys are impossible sometimes. They are crazy. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how else to explain it. Maybe he was left in the care of an older sibling, but not an old enough sibling to handle the stressor of what was going on. My mom was born in 1959. She was left up to the care of her older sister, who was about seven years older than her, because my grandparents both worked. My grandfather was in the military. He was flying planes and doing that kind of stuff. My grandmother ran. They had bars, basically. And so my grandma was gone all hours of the night. My mom was left in the care of her sister. Think about that would be my youngest age that would be caring for a younger sibling. Can yeah, you can imagine? imagine? No. That's what I'm saying. I no. can't even imagine my kids at the age now that they're at taking care of another child. <laughs> they can't even take care of their dogs, okay? <laughs> you ask them at any random point in the day, where's your dog? I don't know. Is your dog being fed? Is there water yeah. in the bowl? Is there water in the bowl? Did you, did you, have you taken him outside so they could pee and poop? Have you done it? No, no, no. So I can't imagine, you know, having a seven-year-old or an, even a, you know, 10-year-old handling a four-year-old. Like it's it's going to be stressful on them. If that were the case, we don't I know. I would agree with that. We don't know. But there's definitely a level of immaturity in the caretaker at this point because we know the boy was malnourished. We know that he had his hair cut very- well, We don't know he's malnourished yet. Oh, we don't know he's malnourished yet. But by the weight and his height, I would say he's probably not on the nourished side. I would agree. The medical examiner noted in his report that the boy was clean and his fingernails were neatly trimmed. Just looking at those details alone, one would think that the boy was well cared for, but there were other findings of something much more sinister at play. As reported by Philadelphia Magazine, the young boy was malnourished to the point that his ribs were visible through his skin on his chest, causing the medical examiner not to be able to determine his specific age at that time. Deep bruises covered much of his body and face, and experts speculate that due to the cold weather, the child may have been lying in the box between two to three days to two to three weeks. So this is really difficult, too, because they're right. When you get really cold weather that can preserve a body, it's harder to tell the time of death, especially back in the 1950s. Like, that would have been really tough. Just because their body is so well-preserved and they don't decay at the rate they would. I mean, moving forward, understanding how the body decays and all that, that knowledge came later, 70s, 80s, 90s. Those were when they really were looking at, like, body farms and they were really trying to figure out how people's bodies decayed, how rapidly they decayed to have a better time of death. And a lot of research has been put into that. But back then, they 
wouldn't have known. And it would have been difficult because, you know, his body would have deteriorated very slowly when in a colder weather. It's why, not to be morbid, but it's why when you go into a morgue it's or so you cold. go into a, a, a funeral home, they actually have freezers where they keep the bodies until it's time for them to be buried. And, you know, you keep up to a week and they don't deteriorate. They don't go bad, I guess. In the sense. Yeah, all that kind of stuff. And so with colder weather, that very well could have thrown them off by weeks because of, of the weather. I can see that. The young boy had multiple scars throughout his body, including four on his forehead. There was also a scar from a previous injury under his chin and several healed scars on his ankle, foot, and groin, which suggests he had surgical procedures performed on those areas of his body. However, he did not have any of the scars associated with certain vaccines that were common at the time. So this tells me that he wasn't getting proper medical care for sure. I would agree. Which kind of goes along with my hypothesis already that he was probably living in a lower lying area. He wasn't born in a populated area where he would have went to the hospital and been born. He might have been born at home and then raised at home, that kind of stuff. So it kind of just goes along with my hypothesis on that. I would agree. Because he doesn't have his vaccination. He's not up to date on those. And secondly, you know, I also look at when they say that they think he was had surgical procedures, that makes me wonder, obviously, there was probably some stitching going on there. That's what I was assuming. Yeah. They have scars of stitching or something for them to think that that's a the, reason. It, it was a medical procedure, procedure over yeah. somebody torturing it. Well, but who's to say that that medical procedure wasn't done because of a torture? Exactly. To me, if he doesn't have any of the vaccinations at the time, right away, my brain would have been like, well, if he doesn't have the vaccinations, then he's never been to a hospital. So how can these be surgical scars? You know what There's I mean? There's a lot of people that, that seriously, they were very they good back then. Yeah, people were seamstress. Yes, yeah, they were excellent. They could do that without having to have any medical knowledge. So I'm like, I don't. Absolutely, they could have. Oh. And, and what gets me is if they were surgical, he would have had to go to the hospital. If he went to the hospital, they would have vaccinated him. They wouldn't have done surgeries without vaccinating him first. Especially during that time with polio and exactly. everything else. So for him not to have those scars makes me wonder if these weren't surgical scars, but yet scars that were done at home made from being tortured or beaten. I, I would agree with that. His feet and right hand were pruny, suggesting he had been in water just prior to his death. It was determined that he had not eaten two to three hours before his death, and his esophagus contained a dark brown residue, possibly indicating he had vomited shortly before death. The medical examiner also noted that he may have had a chronic eye ailment, and the cause of death was determined to be most likely due from multiple blows to the head. That's interesting. Multiple blows to the head. Now, you see how my hypothesis is starting to come together. He was found in a box. He was discarded very quickly. His hair had been kind of butchered, cut off a little bit, but left on this body. Things escalated quickly. This is what's starting to build my hypothesis here, that things escalated quickly during his death. I don't think it was premeditated as much as it was just a kind of crime of passion. It happened and it happened quickly. I would agree with that. And blows to the head, that to me is a is a spanking type of situation, right? Yeah. You won't be quiet. You won't sit still. Whatever the reason was, yep. I'm going to keep hitting you till you do because that was the thought process. I would agree. The unidentified child did not match any descriptions of missing children in the area, and authorities hoped someone would eventually come forward to report a missing boy, but that never happened. In the authorities' effort to identify the young boy, they distributed an estimated 400,000 flyers, placing them in public places, passing them out to pedestrians, as well as being enclosed in utility bills. The flyer had three photos of the boy, which were taken by authorities, a photo of the blanket that was covering his body, as well as a photo of the blue corduroy cap, and a description of the bassinet that originally came in the box he was found in. 
Authorities received hundreds of tips about the boy's possible identity, but unfortunately, none of the tips helped to identify the boy or who may have dumped his body in the woods. What's interesting about this is the box he was found in, the bassinet, those are kind of expensive, pricey things, and it's a rare one. It's not one that's been mass-produced, and that's kind of a pricey thing, too, so it makes me wonder just where in the, I guess, hierarchy of the society does this kid fall? You know what I mean? Because you're talking about a more expensive piece of furniture like a bassinet that's being purchased for a box to be available to put the kid in that nobody would miss. Yep. Frederick Benossi, who had been spying on young wayward girls, was initially thought of as a suspect and questioned, but cleared via a lie detector test. With few clues found at the crime scene, law enforcement officials began following other pursuits. A foster home located about 1.5 miles from where the body was discovered was the first location police officers investigated. There were eight foster children residing there at the time, but all the children located at the foster home were checked out and Arthur Nicoletti and his wife who ran the foster home were ruled out as suspects. Speculation, however, still exists that Arthur Nicoletti is somehow involved as he refused to take a lie detector test. I believe that that's right. Well, there's definitely something suspicious there with not wanting to come forward and say, I didn't do this. A hundred percent. I could see where that would raise some red flags. But at the same time, too, if he is doing something, maybe not having anything to do with this murder, but maybe has done bad things, he wouldn't want to come out on a lie detector test either. That's true. Authorities contributed to an article in a popular pediatric journal to find the doctor who may have performed the surgical procedures on the boy, but nothing came of it. Philadelphia Magazine reported that the doctor who performed the surgeries either did not see the article or simply did not come forward. Very interesting to me. I mean, what are the surgeries that they're talking about? Because they seem to keep going back to that. Need more information on that one. Yeah, I know. Makes me really wonder. Another pursuit the authorities investigated was determining the manufacturer and seller of the bassinet that was originally packaged in the box that the boy was found in. Investigators discovered that the bassinet was sold by the Upper Darby J.C. Penny, and only 11 of those type of bassinets had been sold. Although they contacted 9 of the 11 people who bought the bassinets, they were unable to link any of those people to a missing child. The two other purchasers of the bassinet were never identified. Hmm. Interesting. So that's what I'm going back to. It's a very limited amount of bassinets we're talking about here. So it's a very small suspect's pool in that. But also, too, they could have gotten the bassinet and thrown it out with their garbage and somebody picked it up to use it. That's true, too. Like, that's the only problem with that lead. The blue corduroy cap was also looked into and was found to be manufactured and sold by Philadelphia Robin's Bald Eagle Hat and Cap Company. But they had no record of who purchased their products. Yeah, that's just too wide mass produced. That's just too hard to, to come around. Yep. The faded cheap flannel blanket the young boy had been wrapped in was made in either North Carolina or Quebec, Canada. That's a big difference. Yeah, it's quite a bit stretch. Yeah. It was also mass produced and shipped to multiple locations, being another dead end for authorities. Sure. I got to say, though, so far they're doing pretty good about looking at every possible way that they could. You know what I mean? They are. But nobody likes dead kids. That's true. I mean, you, you talk about uniting a community to try to help. Nobody likes dead kids. That's true. And one great example of that is the serial killer from the 1970s in Atlanta, Georgia. He was killing, I think he wound up killing like 19 young boys before they finally caught him. It's crazy. The Associated Press reported that detectives chased numbers of other leads, including that the young boy was a Hungarian refugee, a kidnapped victim from 1955, and even possibly related to local carnival workers. <laughs> oh my gosh. And, and, and people wonder why these investigations take so long. This is the kind of leads that you get that you have to follow up on. You don't have a choice. And a lot of times they're just rabbit holes. Yeah. 
Bill Kelly, the fingerprint analysis who had been called out to the scene, took a special interest in the case and was determined to identify the boy by comparing his footprints with birth records. Kelly, who without pay, voluntarily sifted through hundreds of birth files from local hospitals and a home of unwed mothers. At the time, the only tool available to him was his own expertise and experience in comparing prints. Yeah, because you're really kind of on the on the cutting edge of, of latent prints in this time and this era. It, it wasn't something that was just that readily available, and there damn sure wasn't a computer, um, database. computer database you could have put them in. Yeah. Yep. According to Grunge.com, Kelly spent years trying to identify the boy using footprints to no avail. He later went on to compare photos of the boy with more than 11,000 passport photos as he thought the boy may have been the son of immigrants. Despite these clues, a facial reconstruction, and thousands of flyers that were distributed across Pennsylvania, the boy's identity remained unknown as well as his killer. Although authorities have never found any definitive evidence proving who killed the boy or how he died for sure, there have been two possible theories about what may have happened. The first came in 1960 from Remington Bristow, an investigator for the medical examiner's office who had also taken a particular interest in the case. In addition to donating $1,000 of his own money for a reward, Bristow published an article in the local paper suggesting the boy may have died accidentally and his parents could not afford a funeral. Court TV reported that Bristow consulted a psychic who told him the boy had lived in a foster home in Philadelphia. Using the psychic's description of the house and the family living in the home, Bristow identified the foster home he had believed the psychic had described. And wouldn't you know it? It was the same foster home Arthur Nicoletti and his wife had run. Yeah, but there's no way to know if that psychic had inside knowledge or not. That's true. About this case and, and how much newspapers a psychic had read and that kind of stuff. I'm not discounting psychics. So don't come at me. <laughs> but it is not something that's very reliable. No, because but I will also play devil's advocate and say psychics have also been used and solved some cases too. They have. So, but and you don't know if they're just really intuitive people. That's what I was going to say. A lot of times it's the intuitiveness and it's what they've heard, right? Sometimes it's stuff that you've heard that you don't even think you've heard. Like a lot of times you could be in there and, and I'm one of these types of people. I will be in the grocery store shopping for bananas and there'll be a couple maybe, you know, down by the apples and something makes me catch my ear to their conversation. All of a sudden we're in a cold snap right now. <laughs> I had no idea this cold snap was coming until they literally were talking about, you know, the weather and, and getting extra water and stuff. And I was like, why do they need extra water? What the hell is going to happen? And then I went home and I was like, oh, shit, there's a cold front coming in. We could lose power again like we did a couple of years ago. So that's, you know, that's just intuitiveness. I wasn't psychic. I just had the intuitiveness to know, okay, when I was at the grocery store, my husband and I came home and I had four packs of water. He's like, what the fuck's all the water for? Well, that's what the water's for because I heard there was weather coming. You know what I mean? Yeah, I get so that. So where you think you're psychic, it's more of you're unconsciously hearing something and then you remember it and it makes you strike an interest. So there's all kinds of ways. And that's why I said it's not very reliable no. as much as you would like it to be. I would love it to be that way, but <laughs> it's usually not that way. No. Although Arthur Nicoletti and his wife had already been interviewed by the police and they were ruled out as suspects. Nevertheless, though, Bristow became convinced that the couple's daughter may have become pregnant out of wedlock and the child was hidden and eventually killed or died by accident. Bristow suggested the body was dumped to preserve the girl's reputation. Hmm. 
That's interesting. I mean, he left till he was four years old, and they're in a foster home, yep. and there's no other. I, I mean, don't believe that. They didn't talk to the kids to find out if there's some kid hidden up in the closet or in the attic. I mean, I it's a little bit of a stretch for me. I would agree on this part. Or the investigators didn't do their job by following through because I would have I would have interviewed everybody in that house. Well, they said they did. Well, and then they're not talking about an extra kid somewhere. That's what they said they could. I mean, everybody was accounted for. So I don't. Yeah, I, I, don't I know. think that's where that kind of that falters for me a little bit. I'd be interested to know if they had a new baby as a foster baby. Yeah, I would, would be explain too. the new bassinet they would yeah. need. Now, after the Nicolette family moved out of their house, Bristow attended an estate sale at their house and was stunned to find a white bassinet that looked like the one sold to J.C. Penney, as well as blankets that resembled the one wrapped around the boy. However, there was never any further investigation into the family. Well, why not? You have good clues right there. You've got blankets that are close to what the boy was wrapped in, and now you've got the bassinet. Where's the box for the bassinet? You know, could you have traced the bassinet model number to the box number? I mean, that's kind of sad that it didn't go any further than that. I would agree. For the next decade, authorities did everything in their power to find the identity of the boy in the box, but were unable to do so. In 1998, law enforcement officials ordered the exhumation of the boy's body for DNA testing, but it would be nearly 25 years before the DNA would help identify him. As the site of the boy's original grave was in disrepair, he was reburied in Philadelphia's Ivy Hill Cemetery when the DNA testing was complete. Forty years later, in 2002, a second possible theory was suggested when a woman identified only as Martha came forward telling investigators that the name of the boy in the box was Jonathan and he had been given to her abusive mother in 1954 from another family in exchange for a sealed envelope when she was 11. According to Martha, Jonathan was kept in the basement where he was forced to use the floor drain for a toilet and sleep in a makeshift bed in an old cold bin. Martha said she and the boy were sexually abused by her mother. In her opinion, her mother purchased the boy for the express purpose of abusing him. Wow, interesting. Mm -hmm. According to Martha, her mother ultimately beat the boy to death in a fit of rage after he had vomited baked beans in the bathtub one night and her mother had then dumped the body in the woods. Although Martha had a history of mental health issues, her doctor confirmed she first told the story about the boy in 1989. However, at the time, she was not ready to discuss the incident with authorities. News, mm. yeah. Newsweek reported that the story Martha told seems credible as baked beans had been found in the boy's stomach during the autopsy. Oh, hey, Martha. Furthermore, Martha had said that her mother had tried to bathe the boy after beating him, which could have explained his pruny fingers. But as of today, authorities have not verified the details of Martha's story. Interesting. On December 8, 2022, officials with the Philadelphia Police Department held a news conference to announce the boy in the box was conclusively identified. Philadelphia Police Commissioner Danielle Outlaw revealed that the identity was confirmed to genetic genealogy. The boy's DNA was uploaded to genetic databases, which led detectives to relatives on his mother's side. After pouring through birth records, they were also able to identify his father. They also learned that the boy's mother had three other children, but their identities have never been disclosed. Law enforcement agents said both biological parents are now deceased. Philadelphia Police Captain Jason Smith stated to the press, It is still unclear how the boy died or who may have killed him. However, he did say, We have our suspicions as to who may be responsible. But it would be irresponsible of me to share these suspicions as this remains in an active and ongoing criminal investigation. 
Smith admitted the identification of the killer might never be known, but he is committed to doing everything possible to solve and eventually close the case. The boy in the box was identified as Joseph Augustus Zarelli, who was born on January 13, 1953, which meant that he was four years old when his body was found. His father was Augusta J. Zarelli, known as Gus, who was a concrete stonemason, a hard worker, and a proud family of Italian immigrants in West Philly. His mother was Mary Elizabeth Abel, known as Betsy, who would have been 21 years old when Joseph was born. A close relative of Betsy, who asked not to be identified, told the Inquirer that Betsy was a real beauty who liked skating and dancing and swooned over Italian boys wearing out the needle on Frank Sinatra Records at her home in the Tioga neighborhood of post-World War II Philadelphia. Wow, so this is starting to come really tight together, right? I mean, what they found through genetic genealogy is kind of what I've already put together a little bit with this case is that obviously the caretaker lost their shit on this kid, right? Was he born in the hospital? Was he not born in a hospital? I don't know. He doesn't have his vaccinations up to date. They've been able to identify his father and his mother, which is interesting. I think they probably could go further into what happened, but they're just not releasing those details because they're still waiting on maybe a a 100% I would agree with that. Proof. And plus, it's really difficult when you don't have the, the means of death. I mean, you have the medical examiner saying he was beaten to death or that could have contributed to his death, but you really don't know exactly what caused his death. How can you charge somebody with murder? That's true. You know? The close relative said Betsy could have put Joseph up for adoption because she had done that before with a daughter. However, the inquiry reported that they have been unable to confirm whether someone adopted Joseph. A Philadelphia police spokesperson declined to comment on the inquirer's findings. Interesting. But it would make sense. I mean, if she couldn't handle him and she put him up for adoption, then we're back to the adopted family. Yes. If she would have put him up, would they have been available to be able to adopt him? Okay. So that's what I was going to say. Can I tell you what my theory is? Go for it. Because I have a theory about this. If, and I think that actually Bristow and Martha, I think there's truth to both their stories and I actually think they intertwine. Let's see. So first of all, I just want to say this is my assumption, but I believe that Betsy, for whatever reason, gave her son Joseph up for adoption. And he was actually placed in the foster home of Arthur Nicoletti and his wife, who was the family that Martha had seen Joseph being picked up by her mother. Mm -hmm. I think that's who it was. I really do. The fact that an envelope of what I assume was of cash was exchanged for him. I think that... This was an adoption that was at first was kept off the records. Sure. I think that maybe Betsy already giving a child up for adoption felt ashamed to give Mm -hmm. another one up. So maybe this was, I found this foster family and just giving it to you. So there was never any records for the police to ever follow up on. Sure. And then why would the foster family give it to Martha's mom? For cash. For cash. I I think, I think. Like Martha's mom bought him? I think Martha's mom bought him. Because he was a boy? Because he was a boy. And I think that. Maybe he was too much to handle for Martha's mom? I think so. And I think Martha's right. I think she sexually abused him and tortured him. I think this was just a fucked up individual and individual and took her sinisterness out on an innocent kid Sure, is what I really think happened. And I think that, like you said, something escalated to cause Martha's mother to hit him so many times that it wasn't premeditated. I think it was in a fit of rage right then and then dumped his body. That's what I really think happened. Sure. And I I agree with you. I mean, that's putting all the pieces of the puzzle together, Court. And that's wonderful. And you're right. I mean, everything seems to line up with all of that coming together. 
And I'm sure the police feel the same way. But you're still at the point of, how did he die? Is it a murder? Did he die of natural causes? Yes, he might have had bruises on him. The medical examiner says that his being hit in the head contributed, but it wasn't the main cause of the death. Exactly. You don't know. You know what I mean? You don't know if he if he froze to death out there, if he was still alive what? when he was put in the box and he froze to death, right? So <clears throat> that's where you come into the problems of you got to have a better story. You got to be able to put it together and have proof to, to of course, corroborate. I would agree. And I think because the police can't prove certain things like that, that's why they haven't that's why they haven't said, taken any steps yeah. or done anything. But they're still working on it. I mean, I, I don't think they've closed this case out yet. So I think they're still working on it. I would agree. As the case is still considered to be open, CNN reported that authorities are offering $20,000 for any information leading to an arrest and conviction. Well, as always, stay, stay stranger than, than usual. We'll be back next week with another cocktail and a new tale of sinister minds or menacing crimes and mistakes they left behind. Thanks for listening. Please don't forget to subscribe and download us on Spotify, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite show. Want the recipe to try Corey's Sinister Cocktail from today's episode? Or have any constructive feedback or true crime stories you would like to hear us cover? Or even Sinister Cocktail recipes for us to try? Email us at SinisterCrimesAndCocktails at gmail.com. Visit our website, www.SinisterCrimesAndCocktailsPodcast.com, Facebook page, Sinister Crimes and Cocktails, and our Instagram page, Sinister Crimes and Cocktails. Love what you heard and want to help support our show or donate to our Sinister Cocktail Fund? You can donate to our cash app at money sign Sinister Crimes, all one word, and we will give you a shout out on our next episode and which fund you donate to. Thank you. (laughs) 